0: Hey, I'm Eric Tornberg and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what they care about, what they grapple with, how they view success and everything in between. This week's episode is with Felix Salmon. Felix is a senior editor at Fusion. He's one of the rare writers who really understands both media and technology and the businesses and cultures behind both of them. He's got this British sense of humor and says exactly what he thinks. In this episode, we discuss skepticism towards the tech industry from the media, why there's such an obsession with scale, why good things come from wasting time instead of optimizing it, the future of news delivery and brands, and a lot more. All right, here's Felix. There seems to be this, this kind of interesting tension between there's a rampant optimism on the tech side and a like rampant skepticism or cynicism from like a handful or or why, journalists, uh, and it seems that they're just kind of like spe- yelling past each other, and there doesn't seem to be much voices in the middle on, on both sides. What do, you, what do you think about that? And it seems that yeah, I our... I, think,
1: I mean it's journalists' job to be skeptical and cynical. If yeah. You weren't a naturally skeptical single person, you wouldn't be a journalist, right? Um, similarly, um, entrepreneurs by their nature are. Optimistic to the point of irrationality. You know, it doesn't make sense to be an entrepreneur. It doesn't make sense to do a startup. Um, there's no sort of, like, if you run the sort of cost-benefit analysis on this kind of stuff, yeah. um, it just doesn't make sense. If you go to Silicon Valley, um, you know, people get paid overwhelmingly in equity. Salaries are not that high. In Silicon Valley, everyone's you know got RSUs and options and stock and equity and stuff, and you're like, the only time it makes sense to, to to get paid in equity is when you're like massively optimistic and hopeful and way more than anyone else, and so there's this you know Silicon Valley culture of, of yeah. optimism, which helps to save money on like payroll costs for the start, um, but also <laughs> it helps to. Um, keep the culture of Silicon Valley relatively homogenous because the people who can afford to take those risks tend to be, you know, young white guys who can, uh, you know, who don't have
0: families to support and so on and so forth. Uh, but I guess skepticism and cynicism is, uh, maybe I was putting it a bit generously, do you not see a, like, uh, a lot of just attacks? You know, or like unnecessary, like, Uh, What's what's the phenomenon where you have a a dislike for something and then you fit the evidence to, or you look for evidence to prove that point? Um, Do you not see that? Maybe maybe it's not there.
1: I, I mean, I know a bunch of tech journalists. I don't really consider myself to be a tech journalist, but I don't think that tech journalists in general are motivated by a desire to sort of tear down or be, or be right. the, um, the structures of Silicon Valley. Um, some of them are, just, uh, are motivated by a desire to be right. Some of them have theories that they, you know, are looking for evidence to support. But in general, no. I think, I think that um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and their employees tend to be very thin skin. Um, and they, you know, and the kind of journalism which goes unremarked in, say, politics is considered unspeakable in, in Silicon Valley. You like, know, grow up, you know, um, yeah, you know, and it's very easy to laugh. And I think there's also an incredible insularity to, to Silicon Valley, and there's this, you know, this group thing, and everyone is convinced that they're on the side of the angels, and that anyone who dares question them is just, you know, a hater. And you're like, fine, you know. But that's, it's not our job
0: to be cheerily Right. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Dave Foster Wallace a few years ago had this post about how there was like an excess of snark um, or, or excess of irony. And it, that seems to only also increase. Have you thought about that at all? Um, yeah. Well,
1: I mean, it's not so much. I mean, David Foster Wallace is, is a very interesting case. The, the the guy who's done the biggest sort of 180 on that is actually Dave Eggers, yeah. who was in New York and started up like this very snarky site called The yeah. Sweeney's, and then sort of had you know this this weird conversion to the cause of like Californian hippie skippy righteousness, and moved to the Bay Area, and is now just like saving kids and being incredibly earnest, um, <laughs> and wrote The Circle. And and but yeah, also wrote the circle, and who is still smart, and you know, but he wrote this this piece many years ago called "Some Complaining About Complaining," where he you know, a degree of snark, and then there was this whole Tom Scocker piece called you know Snark versus Smart. Mm-hmm. It's a debate which isn't going to go away, um, but it's also, and I think this is important to recognise. A very sort of media insidery debate. The if you look at what, for lack of a better word, you you know, we'll call mainstream media, this like it is not characterized by snark and it. You know, there's a few, there's a certain amount of like blogging, bitching at the
0: margins,
1: which Silicon Valley people love to get upset about. But in the grand scheme of things, the fact is that Silicon Valley has unbelievably positive press. If you look at how Silicon Valley is covered in the world, if you look at how most of the world gets its news, most of the world gets its news through television. How does television news cover Google, Apple, like with just tongues hanging out? You know, oh my God, check out this watch, it's awesome. Um, You know, there's, there's like the, the, you know, the real people on planet Earth do not read TechCrunch, you know? Mm-hmm. They watch ABC News. And if you're watching ABC News, what you see is these, you know, um, breathless reports about Jeff Bezos and his, you know, drone deliveries. And you're like, oh, wow, that's so cool, man. Yeah, you know, and... <laughs> And frankly, you know, I think we can all agree that there's not enough skepticism there given that these, you know, Amazon drone deliveries are never going to happen. You know, so, you know, I think in general, if you you just stop and remember that most news is television news in terms of, like, where people actually receive it, there's not enough skepticism.
0: It's interesting. Another theme in in tech right now uh, is that, wisdom of the crowds in terms of like whatever people like is good entertainment wise and that people should judge you know that people are watching other people play games or playing all these games as opposed to like people reading books and that there isn't sort of a value judgment in there I don't know what to what to actually think about that and I work for a site you know in which the crowd chooses what's good how do you think about this?
1: Yeah there's definitely I mean again what we're seeing is um,
0: the fetishization scale Right? because again, So much so that people describe like let's make this more meaningful a meaningful company by how big it is. Right, And, um, and the reason people want scale
1: is because that's how you get rich. So the greatest thing you can possibly do in the way you become lionized in, in the movies and, and all the rest of it is to be Mark Zuckerberg, right? Is to create something which billions of people use. And even if there's relatively little meaning there because there's scale to it, it's just the the height of success. Um, Whereas if you write an unbelievably smart book or, you know, an unbelievably smart podcast or something and you reach fewer people, then you've had less success. And people judge success by how rich you are and how big you are. And that's, it gets a little bit old.
0: Has has it been the case for quite a bit? Or is that like been a fairly recent trend.
1: No, I mean, it's always existed to some degree. The question is the degree. You You know, is it getting worse? Yes. And is the amount of scale that you need to be considered successful or important getting just bigger and bigger every day? Yes. And that, I think, is the problem that, you know, sure, you needed to be able to reach a certain audience once upon a time in order to be taken seriously. But that audience has now, you know, the, the size of that audience has gone up by, I don't know, three, four orders of magnitude, and so you know, the idea that you could write an intelligent book which was read by five thousand people and that that would make you an important thinker, you know, now you need to reach five million people. And you're like, whoa, or more. It's a okay. five, 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 million's like oh, we're only, you know, that website's only got, it's only reaching five million people. It's really not a blip. It's too small. I hear that all the time. You know? And you're like, wow, okay, so five million is kind of really, we're not there yet. Five million people is an insane number of people and it's now just, you know, no one, no one's interested in five million people. It's like, it's a rounding error.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's great because sometimes to reach more people you have to sacrifice a little bit.
1: Well, you know, you always, to reach more people you always have I mean, not you don't always have to sacrifice, but it often helps. And then you often wind up, well, you know, optimizing. I hate, you know, one of one of my big pet peeves is is people who are always like maximizing and optimizing. And and I feel, like, about that. I feel like you know everything bad in the world has come from optimizing. And you like what? I feel that the good things in life uh, uh, come from like the wasteful things. It's 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 when you are wasting time, when you're wasting money, when you're playing around at the edges, when you have, uh, you know, the a certain amount of freedom to do something weird. That's when like awesome stuff happens. And then if you're constantly trying to work on efficiency, and if you're constantly trying to get more out of less, then you just become, uh, you know soulless and there's okay here, here's the thing look at the my my thing which I know quite well which is media and, and websites and that kind of stuff they all look exactly the same <laughs> all of them why is this because they are all optimized for social and they are all optimized for mobile uh, phone screen is small and you know you need to be able to sort of read things easily on it so there's a limited amount you can do on there and then there's various sharing tools which you know they all have little hamburger buttons and sharing tools because that's how they optimize this and then they will all have like cute crazy headlines because that's also you know been shown to work basically they all wind up converging on more or less the same place. It's really hard to do something different because the minute you do something different, you're not optimizing anymore and everyone wants to be optimizing and everyone wants to be maximizing. You're always, you know, if you can have 10 million uniques, that's better than if you have 5 million uniques, you know, and that's, you're moving in the right direction. So it's, so that kind of optimization generates homogeneity. It generates a kind of very well-trodden path which everybody understands. And it's a way to just that there's 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 very there's much less opportunity to sort of differentiate yourself, feel different. You know? I mean the the actual subject matter might be able to change a bit, but even then, you know, if you if you want to get too reckoned like you're gonna lose readers, so you don't go there.
0: Are you a fan of N plus one?
1: In general I am a fan of I mean in, in principle I guess what I'd say is I'm a fan of anyone who's because um, they're not optimizing. <laughs> yeah, who's, who's just doing things differently and doing their own thing. You know, I think that's awesome. Um, and what I worry is that those people are often coming from uh you know, similarly homogeneous uh, sort of. Lefty intellectual background, Mm -hmm. which I'm like, yeah, yeah, you guys go ahead and do that thing. But I feel like everyone should be doing that. Yeah, I feel like it shouldn't just be the lefty intellectuals who carve out their little niches. I feel everyone should be carving out their little niches. I feel this was the original promise of the internet Mm -hmm. was that it would be a million um, flowers, all you know, lots of little niches, all blooming and being wonderful. And in fact, what's happened is that is the you know, we we we've had this optimization and homogenization, and everyone just wants to be big
0: now. Yeah, T- tell me more, or really paint a picture for how uh, all the good. What you said earlier, all the good things come from the opposite of optimizing. Like, what was it? Look like waste.
1: Like, I I think, I mean, okay, that that's that's probably you know just me being provocative. I think, <laughs> I mean, there's obviously areas where um a certain amount of optimization could be good but it, there's also areas where a certain amount of optimization can be really bad like for instance in um you know if if you're building something for posterity you want a whole bunch of redundancy in there if you look at all of the buildings in the world which have last you know which are still standing after 1000 or 2000 or 3000 years right They weren't optimized to be super, you know, efficient. They were built like, you know, brick shithouses because they, um, you know, people just wanted it to be solid. Um, If you look at the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, which is kind of the icon of Silicon Valley, it's built so that it can easily support three times as much traffic as it actually you know There have been occasional proposals to add a whole other deck of traffic to the Golden Gate Bridge and all you need to do really is just add another deck because it's more than strong enough to do that. Um, no one when they built the Golden Gate Bridge was saying well we could probably save some money if we just used a bit less steel and you know, we could still support just as many cars. You know, That wasn't an optimization thing that they, were doing. they were like we're going to build a fucking awesome bridge and they built the fucking awesome bridge and I feel that that and that bridge isn't going anywhere. You know, and that's great and now when you, know, you build the Bay Bridge and I know quite a lot about the Bay Bridge I spent a bunch of time talking to its architect um, things are different so you know, there's a whole bunch of seismic modelling going on and making sure that it can withstand this and withstand that and what you do is you basically just sort of like tweak things so that you, you still keep it as light and as elegant as possible while still being able to withstand this and withstand that you know, no one was doing seismic modeling when they built the Golden Gate Bridge, but it's still going to be able to withstand just as much of an earthquake as the Bay Bridge is because it's just. Great. Right. The fucking Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. You
0: know? I got you. Uh, you interviewed Jonah Peretti, founder of BuzzFeed, uh, a year ago? More?
1: Yeah, about a year ago. Uh,
0: it was a pretty. Uh, it was a very interesting interview, uh, but it was pretty favorable. Uh, I really like Jonah. Yeah.
1: And I think actually. Um, if you look at the amount of money that so that guy is pouring into news and editorial, it's clear that he's not optimizing. You know, like he, like the entire BuzzFeed news operation, basically, you could... Um, you could sort of like nuke the entire thing tomorrow, and the BuzzFeed valuation would probably double because, like, they, they would suddenly be making much more money, and um, you know, half the stuff, more than half the stuff, would just be gone. You know, um, and it's not those guys who are um, who are bringing in the page views and or, or bringing in the revenues, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has this. Um, so he is building a company for posterity, which has a bunch of like waste in it. He's going out there hiring Mark Schutz from ProPublica to build an investigative unit. None of that is inherently profitable. Um, so you think he has? He the doesn't. Way it doesn't it, he yeah. doesn't even sell ads. You know, he, he like you know people are like you have all of these base views. You should be selling ads on them. And he's like, no, I'm not going to sell ads. I want to build this site. And if you want to give me money, you're going to have to do it my way, um, you know, by, by buying, like, these native content unit things. And you're like, no, and, and, and he's... And so, yeah, I feel like for all that they do, a fuck ton of A-B testing and trying to see what works, and yes, he does have scale. At the same time, he's not trying to... Um, Play that game that a lot of other people are playing where they're like, we have some piece of content, how do we maximize the number of impressions that it generates what? Um, you know, his game is different for any given story that they publish they don't want to maximize the number of impressions through you know, the kind of curiosity gap headlines or something like that by making people click and then going, oh well now I'm disappointed, they're like, they're like who would actually want to have read this And how can we maximize the number of those people who read it Mm. while at the same time not putting it in front of a whole bunch of people who, it turns out, would not want to have read it?
0: So do you think they have the right balance that a lot of companies should be going for between understanding data, growth, you know, they're venture-backed by Andreessen, uh, but also, you know, trying to build a brand for, you know, and are they they supposed to be going to be around in 20 years, as opposed to 50 years, you know? Are they like the New York Times of our So Jonah, what, Jonah, Jonah's
1: ambition is to be the next timing, right? He said this many times. Um, you know, if he's constantly talking about Henry Luce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, joined, is he going to get there? I have no idea. that his VC back is going to eventually persuade him that he should just sell the company. I mean, you know, he came very close to selling the company to Disney. So, um, And probably if he had done, then you know the chances of him becoming some big you know media co- company and the posterity would be pretty slim so you know i don't know what's going to happen and i'm not a huge fan of the vc funding um, business General. model cuz the vcs want an exit i mean this is one of the reasons why i'm perfectly happy to work for a company which is not a VC funded which is just funded by you know two big strategic investors because they don't need an exit and they, they, they can be patient and they can say well listen we want to reach a certain generation for decades and decades to come um, and so can you build something which helps work out how this generation is consuming content and help you know and gives that generation the kind of content that they want and that you know and, and work that out and do it without wondering Worrying too much
0: about you know how much of a multiple can you sell this right. for? Well, it's kind of the old model, right? The benefactors just is kind of status item to own the New Yorker.
1: It's you know. not, It's not even for status. I mean, okay, remember we,
0: you know
1: our, our shareholders are ABC News and Univision, right? These are mass mass media companies. Um, again, as I say, the way that people have historically got their news, the vast majority of people has been. Over-the-air broadcast TV, and they're big. Both of them—that's their bread and butter—is over-the-air broadcast TV. No one believes that over-the-air broadcast TV is how most people are going to get their news in 30 years' time, right? So, we, our job at Fusion, is to reinvent. You know, is, is to work out how are people going to be getting their news in 30 years'
0: time, and, and do that for a new for a new generation. And how are they going to be getting their news? And how are you going about? You know, finding that out or, or doing Exactly. That. So 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 our job is
1: you know is not to sort of say how do we create a company which is gonna be worth a billion dollars in a year or two's time, right? Or even have like a secondary market valuation. The job the, the, the job is to reach a, an entire generation, more or less in perpetuity, right, for decades and decades to come. And if you can do that, then you get you you start literally reaping dividends. You know our, our, one of our kind Disney, I just saw this on Twitter. I love this. In nineteen eighty five, the share price of Disney it was equal to what the dividend is today. So that's what I call about dividend. Like, you know, it's not a question like yeah, you can look at the market cap of Disney and say, well there's a valuation now and, you know, all of that kind but that's not the point. The point is once you get the ship right, then you get a permanent income stream, which is just amazing. And, you know, the VC model is, yeah. You know, as I was saying about Mark Andreessen earlier, the VC model is like, let's not worry about the long term. Let's just try and find a way of getting an exit and making lots of money because that's how success is measured.
0: In five years from now, what are people going to be saying about journalism? Like, are, are, are you excited about where it's going? Um, well, I mean, it's changing so unbelievably
1: fast that... Um, yeah, I have no idea what it's going to look like in five years um, I can tell you that the number of journalists in the world is just going to be bigger than ever the, the quality of the journalism being produced by all of those big journalists in the world is going to be bigger than ever the, the definition of a journalist and who counts as a journalist and who doesn't is, is already eroded massively and now kind of not, you know there's no bright lines anymore between who is and who isn't. And those fuzzy lines have just become going to become even fuzzier. Um, the, the way people receive news is is changing rapidly. Um, it used to just be single packages, which were pack, you know, and, and then the people doing the packages, the people editing the packages, had all the all of the power, and then they would work for people like ABC News or the New York Times, and they would. Put Packages together, and then they you give you a package, and then you go. Oh, now I've watched my news, newscast. Now I've read my newspaper. Now I've received news. So obviously, that's not going to be how we get our news anymore. Um, it's going to be a much more sort of coming at us from a million different di- directions and a million different sources. And in that world, you know, there are big unanswered questions about how do people know what to trust? How do people know? where, you know, who's right, how do you carve out a brand and and the brand value in a world where you have Facebook Instagram, or Apple News and every brand looks and feels the same as every other brand and they're all optimizing in the same way and they're all writing stories in the same way, Um, what, you know, what does it even mean to be like the New York Times at that point rather than some, you know, highly unreliable ideologue with an axe to grind in Ukraine, somewhere, you know, it. It's, if everyone looks the same and smells the same and quacks the same, it's hard to tell that difference. And you know, my generation still places great stock in a lot of the old media brands. And if you look at um, the people who hire PR companies and then. You know what the PR companies do. They often go first for the old media yeah. brands. You know, and when you know, from when I was hired at Fusion, they were like, "Well, you know, where should we announce this?" So everyone said, "Oh, yeah, it should definitely be in the New York Times," and you can see why. And I yeah. I agree with that. You know, um, but those the value of those brands, I think, is probably going to erode. And I think that's possibly, I mean, there were good things. You know. It, that's good in terms of it allows a whole bunch of new outlets to start becoming part of the conversation much more easily and that's good but it's also bad in terms of it allows a whole bunch of new outlets <laughs> to, becoming, to become part of the conversation much more easily and how that's going to shake out I, I don't know but I do have a feeling that you know it's going to be really hard to get the same kind of copper-bottomed, like, now I have read the news and I know what's going on from yeah. reading Ozzy and Mike and Box and yeah. all these other three-letter outlets, <laughs> you know, as you, as you used to be able to get from the New York Times. You are also a fan of the browser. Ah, the browser, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the browser is, is, is an interesting model. Um the browser is basically Robert Cottrell. Yeah. I mean, so the browser is one guy who, like, I don't think he's in Estonia anymore. I think he moves back to London. But, um, but like, he could easily be in Estonia. It doesn't matter where yeah. he is, right? And he's just, like, clicking on links. And, you know, he's, I mean, I mean, this was a real, you know, take a snapshot of what the world was like in the late 2000s. Um, you know that was the absolute high point of RSS. You know where you, where you could you could literally just have one guy in a basement with a whole bunch of RSS feeds, being able to read really quickly and being able to make snap judgments on what was interesting and being able to sort of um, curate that shit. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but again, like I I think that we we've now reached a world where, like, Nuzzle is the new yeah. the browser, right? That everything is now algorithm-based. That I know... What I, that, that, for all that Robert Cottrell is really great at finding stuff, the fact is that my hand-picked list of the people that I follow on Twitter is always going to be more interesting to me than his hand-picked list of the people that matter to him. And So if Nuzzle can then come along and show me what I really care about, um, then that's probably going to be more valuable to me than you, you're a big fan of Nuzzle. I'm a big fan of Nuzzle. I mean, it worries me though as well because you know if, if you then plug Nuzzle into the kind of Facebook Instant or yeah. Flipboard or Apple News or one of those you know interfaces that I mean already got Nuzzle in the app you know, you just click on the text thing and every single news story looks the same. The the, the source, the branding goes away and it's not clear that, that you know, so, so while I will wind up getting informed through Nuzzle, it's, you know, the economics of how my getting informed sort of trickles back to the original news gathering and, 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 and helps to fund that is,
0: is far from clear. Yeah, my worry is that, maybe this is short-sighted, uh, or ill-informed, but that the people who have the sense of taste, like, let's say, Robert Cottrell, for example, th- those are very different from the people who ha- who could build the platforms. Uh, and I'm friends with the guys at Nuzzle, too, not to bring up this example, but uh, not to use them as an, as an example, but that the people who, who build the platforms don't always have the sense of, the, of either taste and perhaps more insidiously, like, a sense of, I don't know, you know, uh, importance beyond scale or separate from scale and that the people who kind of uh, judge the values that we, that we live by are the people who build
1: the platforms. Right, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. Everyone wants to be a platform, and every time I interview anyone, they're like, oh, yeah, we have a platform for this. We're building a platform for that. Um, this was so So uh, yesterday, of course, but the, the, the big news of right now when we're, about, when we're recording this... <laughs> um is that circa just died. Yeah, okay, let's talk about that. And Matt um put out a blog post mm-hmm. I saw that. Um explaining why um why circa died and or what happened or what didn't happen. And this is a verbatim quote from this blog post. Our ongoing plan was to monetize Circa news through the building of a strategy <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just period? Was there something after that? Huh? Was there something after that?
1: that? And then he just went on about how <laughs> he was very hard to But he's like, okay, <laughs> there's no there there. And everyone wants to be a platform. Like, Wait well, yeah, it's it's the freaking underpants nodes again. You're like, you know, step one, build a platform, step two, question mark, step three, form it. You know? Yeah. Um there's platform there's platform that and um, it's it the word has become debased, but it, if it means anything, it basically means content agnostic, right? It means that people can discover whatever they want on a platform. It's not that you have a group of human beings who are t- making choices about what's important and what isn't. You know, it's a little bit dangerous in a way, or, or, or possibly just encouraging of a sort of lowest common denominator um, mentality. The reason I like Nuzzles so much is probably just because I've been on Twitter for seven years six years something like that and I spent a lot of time more or less without thinking about it putting together a group of really smart people who I follow yeah. and I'm smart and the people I follow are smart and somehow if you get all of that together if you take my ability to curate that follow list and if you um, take those people and, and their ability to find interesting content and you put the two together you get something great And theoretically, anyone in the world can just subscribe to my nozzle feed, Mm -hmm. but no one does. (laughs) You know, everyone just winds up subscribing to their own nozzle feed. And and, um, Twitter's a good platform because, in in that sense, because it does allow you to be that much more sort of individualistic, and and it's also one of the problems. But then, you know, people, you know, it drives me up the wall. So. There's all of this talk right now about, like, how are we going to save Twitter? Twitter's in trouble. Who can run Twitter? And, and you know, how are they going to solve all the problems with Twitter? Twitter is a fucking, you know, multi-billion dollar <laughs> company. It's got, like, billion dollars of revenues. It, yeah. It's reaching 300 million people across the world. It was like, oh, <laughs> You know, I mean, they might get overtaken by Snapchat, you know, and, and you're like, okay, so, and, and this actually goes back to the whole thing, like, if you look at Twitter's losses, Twitter is losing a lot of money right now, but all of those losses are stock-based compensation. It's all that, you know, we're paying our employees in stock, and then we need to account for that using generally accepted accounting principles, and then if you put out your 10K, then it winds up with a big negative number under net income. Um, but when you're paying your employees in stock, they want that stock to go up and not down, and the way that the stock goes up and not down is if you show growth, growth, growth. So reaching 300 million people and providing a wonderful service to 300 million people is not enough. It always needs to get better and better and better and better, and this constant need for growth, both when you're private and when you're public, is incredibly destructive. It's really bad. Look at the company, look at the oldest companies in the world. Look at the companies which have been around for like a thousand years or even just like 700 years. They're all family-owned companies which do something and just have been doing that forever. It's which right? companies do? So, one of my favorite ones is, um, one, literally one of the oldest companies on the planet Earth is Kikoman Soy Sauce. <laughs> it's been around since, you know, 1100 or something. <laughs> and you know, that's what they do. They make soy sauce and they put it in bottles and they sell the soy sauce and they've done that for centuries and they will do it for centuries and are they going, we need growth. We need growth. No. Are they listing on the stock market? No. Yeah. Hotels. You know, you can have a hotel which has been around for a, a thousand years, you know, 500 years and people come, they, you know, pay their money and they spend the night and you know, yeah. make, it supports itself. Um, timberland. You know, you can just, you know, all yeah, the, there's a lot of things where you just do it, and there's no growth. Um, the Antonori family in Italy have been making wine for like a thousand years and making good money at it, but they're not growing. Right. It's just like we have met, we have found this business is profitable. We're happy, but no one is happy being profitable. I remember um, in two thousand and six, um, Bank of America came out with. You know, quarterly earnings of three billion dollars or something, and there was all this talk about, "Oh, this is disappointing." You know, how 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 can it be higher than this? We need to we need to improve this. I mean, like no
0: one is ever going. No one is ever satisfied with anything. You know, even you know, you can be Apple, you can be making
1: more money than God, and everyone's like, "Yeah, well, you know, where's the growth going to come from?"
0: And, uh, has this gotten worse, or why has this happened? And is this going to get continued? Like, what? what why? But, but,
1: but just to finish the thought, the. Sure. the the problem with that is that, you know, if you're not satisfied with just making insane amounts of money, and you you, you always need to make more next quarter than you did this quarter, then you wind up, you know, you're not going to last forever. You're going to take up, you're going to wind up taking lots of risks, and you're going to wind up falling on your face, and, you know, that's great. That's, that's how capitalism works, and, you know, but it is a little bit disappointing when you've created something so amazing as Twitter, which is one of the most valuable companies in the world. Maybe not in terms of market cap, but in terms of like the value it creates for people like me, you know, I, I would happily pay, you know, a thousand dollars a year or more for Twitter, if you know, if I right. needed to, if I could get that. I, of course, you know, if it costs a thousand dollars a year, then it wouldn't be as valuable as it is. Um, but no because no one is monetizing that, you know, everyone's like, ooh, and sucking their teeth and wondering, you know, how can they how can they do better, how can they grow more, you know, the co-founders are all billionaires, but that's not good enough. And it, it's it's depressing to me. And you know, so that that kind of thing, I feel like if you know Jonah Peretti can retain control of BuzzFeed and can just be happy having an awesome company which does awesome things and makes a lot of money, then that would be great. But, you know, he has VC backers, they're going to want an exit. It's difficult.
0: On the same token a little bit, we were talking about Twitter because they don't they don't charge. Uh, Chris Dixon had a tweet recently something along the lines of internet ads, promotion of internet ads. There's a lot of, like, how they enable, you know, a ton more people... To uh, to use things like Twitter for free, uh, and just have access to information and opportunities. Um, But someone, as a sponsor, posited a scenario in which something like Uber doesn't cost any. What Uber is free, but all you you have to listen to ads the whole time, or something. And they're like video ads, (laughs) and you can't that you can't escape from. Uh, Do you fear? uh, How do you see ads as a? Okay, like is there a hidden cost of ads that we haven't figured out as a society yet? Or what, what do you mind? What, how do you see ads in general?
1: There was there was a great episode of Black Mirror about that.
0: Yeah. Um, the, 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 cycle, the cyclists, the cyclists yes. you know,
1: they can't you need to pay money to turn off the ads. I love that show. Um, yeah, ads a a great way of um Making monopoly media franchises profitable. If you have a dominant market position, if you're the NBC Nightly News, or if you're Vogue magazine, or if you're you know the Washington Post of old, where like seventy percent of the DC metro area read your paper, and that's you know what they all used to, you know, they all read the classifieds to buy stuff and sell stuff and that kind of stuff. Then it's a great way, like, you know, you can set the price of the ads because, because people need to advertise with you in order to be relevant. And then you can make huge profits and you can then reinvest those profits back into the, um, into the media product and everyone wins pretty much. On the internet, it doesn't work like that. No one really has the ability to set prices. Um, no one has a monopoly. In a weird way, someone like BuzzFeed probably does more now than anyone else because you know if you want to create you know a branded BuzzFeed thing, you have to go to BuzzFeed for that. They won't let you do someone else's. But even then, you know it, it's not that much freedom. So. At that point, ads stopped being a way to, to to support a great sort of monopoly-esque franchise. And they really did mostly support the biggest brands and franchises. And they just start becoming an annoyance. You know, I recently started seeing more and more this thing where you have video pre-rolls for just text articles on the internet. You know, you go to the LA Times and you have to sit through a sort of 10 second video ad before it will let you read the story that you're trying to read. And that's just horrible. That's a miserable fucking experience. And no one, and and ads shouldn't be a miserable fucking experience. Right? If I pick up a copy of Vogue, the ads are as pleasurable, if not more so, as the editorial. It's all one wonderful package. If I was reading the Washington Post in 1985, you know, the classifieds were useful to me. No one would pay money for classifiers unless people wanted to read them, and they got value out of them. And what's happened on the Internet is that we've moved away from this idea that ads should actually be things which people want to consume and and get value out of you know in the way that people really like you know checking out that new Stephen Mizell Prada campaign in in Vogue or whatever and we've moved into this sort of just idea that ads should be annoying things which we stick in front of you whether you like it or not and you just Mm -hmm. in you know build like ad blockers to try and make them go away and then it becomes this horrible you know it, it so yeah, that, it doesn't scale, it doesn't work, it's it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those sort of sub-optimal equilibria, it's not clear how you move from that to a different one. I know that Mark Andreessen has talked a bunch about when he first built the web browser, there was this little sort of payments tag in there that, you know, every page would have... Uh, Micro payment associated with it, and then you would just, you know, every time you read the page, you'd pay that little tiny sum, and it was somehow, you, you know, you could pay, you know, X post or something it was on sort of pay as you go basis. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Obviously, you know, Andreessen Horowitz as a company is very invested in, in uh, like, Bitcoin and thinks that maybe there might be a way of doing that. There's a kind of interesting company out of um, Holland, the uh, Netherlands called The Correspondent, which is trying to do something. They're launching in the US, and they're trying to do something a little bit like that for sort of, you know, pay-as-you-go kind of system of micropayments. But micropayments haven't worked. They didn't take off. A lot of people tried to make them take off. A lot of people lost a lot of money trying to make them take off. Ads have become the dominant paradigm and trying to change that dominant paradigm is probably you know foolish I mean someone might be able to do it but I'm not holding my breath Mm -hmm. and it's not just the ads of the dominant paradigm but annoying ads (laughs) are the dominant paradigm and the ads that you don't want to look at and ads that you don't want to consume are the dominant paradigm you're like this is not good this is not good for me Um, but you know No one's really solved the problem of how do you do brand advertising on the internet. There's two, you know, you can think of advertising in general as splitting into brand advertising on the one hand and like just direct response, like junk mail on the other hand. And 99% of what you see on the internet is junk mail. Because it can be measured people on the internet love things which they can measure, right. and you can't measure the impact of that Stephen might whole campaign for product you can measure the impact of how many people clicked on you know my Netflix ad yeah so it, it just becomes yeah annoying I you know I I, recently, I, I just feel like there's we're, we're still in the early days of, of brand advertising and how brand advertising is going to be able to evolve as media consumption is more and more um, online. But, it, but for the time being, it's basically, you know, it's, it's showing up in $5 million Super Bowl ads yeah. because you can do that on TV. People know how to do it on TV. And TV is the last vestige of mass media. And so, like, what's happening right now is that the brand advertisers are just, you know, being... They're, they're, they're being crowded into the corner of, like, the few big TV events where they can still get a mass audience because they don't know how to brand advertising yeah. on, online. That has not been solved. And maybe it won't be solved. I don't know. It would be really depressing because then, you know, we wind up with more and more of this horrible junk mail and emails for right. text pieces and
0: God well, help us. Uh, a couple more questions then I going to let you go. Um, you recently wrote a piece about, uh, you saying, don't become a journalist or something along the lines. And it's provocative, but you're basically saying, if I understand it correctly, that the power is with the people who make the platforms and not that don't become a journalist, it's just harder and harder economically to support it. Yeah. Is that a fair... Yeah. And, and, you know, as I was saying, you know, the one
1: thing I'm optimistic about is that we're going to see more and more journalists from more and more places doing more and more content, a lot of which is going to be really high quality. Um But from a simple supply and demand economic perspective, that's really bad for the journalists, you know? I used to compete with a bunch of other, you know, over-educated white people, and not that many of them, and it was hard enough for me. Now when you're competing against the entire planet, and some, like, unbelievably talented people, and everyone's competing on the basis of, like, how good they are at getting page views and clicks and stuff, that's just depressing. Um, You know, and... and the people who make the money are going to be the owners and the people who create the platforms and the people who create the you know, the systems into which you can plug these sort of interchangeable journalists rather than the journalists themselves. So I think it's going to be really hard to be a journalist. I think that for most of the 20th century, you know, journalism was something you could have a real career and you could raise a family as a journalist. You could have a decent middle-class life you know, with a spouse and kids and a house in the suburbs and all the rest of it on, you know, just by going to work and committing journalism and is that something which I see happening to millions of journalists around the world in 20 years' time now? Right. Uh, Have any responses to that article surprised you? Um, I was surprised by the amount of anger that came out. People, you know, journalists in particular... Um, don't like to hear this. And there were, you know, there was a bunch of, like, missing-the-point responses which said, well, if you become a superstar, then you can make lots of money. I'm like, yeah, great. Okay, the top 0.1% of journalists are going to be great. But that's just the, you know, I don't want, you know... I I, want, I would love to see a world where you do not need to be in the top zero point one percent of journalists in order to be able to raise a fucking family. Yeah,
0: know? it's interesting to see the kind of this old new clash, and it was uh, maybe typified in the uh, the New Republic. What mm-hmm. happened? Uh, did you have strong thoughts on what happened there? I mean, a lot of people were angry about it. <sighs> there, there's a lot of different things that happened with the New Republic,
1: and um, I you know I think that. The new New Republic, um, Gabriel's New Republic, is a really good publication. and In many ways, it's a much better publication than the old New Republic. I feel that the old New Republic, however, did serve a purpose, and that Chris Hughes should not have bought it if he didn't want that. If he wanted to create something brand new and different, then he should have created something brand new and different. What you don't do is buy this storied old franchise and then gut it and then create something different under the same name, you know. Because a, it's you know, it, it just causes too much like anger, basically. The you know, maybe. The New York Republic would sort of slowly wither and die, but in a weird way, people would have been happier that way if Marty Perez had just sort of sold it to someone who didn't quite have enough money to keep it going, and it would, you know, it would be a death by a thousand cuts, and people would be sad, and they would die. But there wouldn't have been the same
0: amount of anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, this is my last question, which is: there aren't that many people who are really in the middle that they understand where everything's going, tech-wise and, and growth-wise, but also really understand the old world too, and. I think you kind of have a unique footing. And so, like, what do you want to do? Where is, and I, I know you're a fusion, but, like, what, are, what is your cross to bear, so to speak? And, like, what is your role in all this? <laughs> um, I, Because it is really unique.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I've never had a career plan. I, I've, I, you know, I've certainly never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I had a couple of ideas once upon a time, you know. Can you build something on a platform? And then I, you know, slapped myself and said, <laughs> "Don't be stupid." Um, things move fast, and I'm happy like observing. And I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where I'm. At. I've never known. The ho- my entire career has been like a series of completely random events, most of which have been like ridiculously lucky. And so I'm very fortunate to be where I am and, and I'm and and i really happy to be where I am and I'm doing weird and wonderful things and I don't really know what I'm doing, but that's kind of okay because I have a sort of mandated experiment. Um and we'll see where it goes. I, yeah, I, I'm not ambitious. I've never been ambitious in that sense. I've never sort of said to myself, oh, well, you should go out and build the world. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I talked Jonah came up to me very early on and said, might you be interested in like, being editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed? I was like, God, no. And I would have been dreadful at that job. You know, I would have been dreadful as editor-in-chief uh, of anything. You know, um, I never, you know, I'm not I'm not a builder in that sense. I, I'm more of a sort of observer. And um, I'm happy just doing that. If there's someone who wants to pay me to do that, which, you know, happily enough, that has been for the past few years,
0: that's just amazing. And your message to uh, people in Silicon Valley and in tech uh, you know, who are listening to this, who we've thoroughly alienated <laughs> I'm just kidding. But what your message is, or something you want to leave them with? Just maybe get on a playing and
1: spend a bit of time in the rest of the world. I, you know, I feel that it's a real bubble. Um, not in, I mean, not in the sense of like a bubble and bust yeah. bubble, but in the bubble is like, there's, you know, you kind of feel that the rest of the world doesn't even exist when you're out there. Um, and maybe every so often you'll hop on a plane to go to New York, and that's like this weird and alien city. But no, there's a whole world out there—a fascinating world out there, a real world out there. And if you want to change the world, that's the world that you need to change. The change, you know, it's not about scaling apps and creating platforms, um, you know, and it's not about growth and wealth and. You know, you know what's really cool is a billion dollars. Uh-huh. You know, I feel that the, the, there's... People need to get out more, frankly. And not on, you know, not in the sense of taking their $5,000 carbon fiber bike and taking it up Mount Tamalpais or whatever. You know, they need to just travel. I, I, that's, I think, the main thing. Just travel around, I don't know, Zambia or... Um, or just somewhere bizarre and awesome and not in a kind of privileged touristy way but just kind of hang out with people and see how people live and just get a bit of perspective because I feel like that's the one thing which is often lacking Mm -hmm. is that everyone's so heads down and trying to grow and crush it
0: you're like, nah, that, there's more to life than that, you know? Yeah, I hear you. But if you're, you don't mind, i got to go back to crushing it and scaling, <laughs> <laughs> scaling my app. Uh, this has been awesome. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Um, fusion.net, yeah.
1: felixhammon.com, at Hammond @felixhamon on Twitter, or just don't even bother. Just <laughs> go out and switch off and, you know, go for a swim or something.
0: Perfect. All right, thanks, Felix.